Hello and welcome into the Cultural Coven. I'm your host, Nicola Roy. I hope this finds you well and thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is none other than esteemed actress of stage and screen, the wonderful, witty and very classy Ms Siobhan Redmond. I first met Siobhan through our lovely mutual friend Liz Lockhead, the former MACA or National Poet of Scotland, around 11 years ago. And then I had the privilege of working alongside Siobhan in Liz's play The Memolier at the Lyceum Theatre in 2016. And I always think chatting to Siobhan is a bit like receiving a big cuddle. So you're in for a treat. Here in the coven we talk all things theatre, iconic characters, self-imposed pressure, that amazing red hair. Oh, and it turns out she's not really the boating type. You'll find out what I mean. Enjoy. Nicola Roy's The Cultural Coven is brought to you with an association support from the Lyceum Theatre and the Stephen Dunn Theatre Fund and is produced by Emotion Theatre Company. So hello Siobhan and happy Easter Sunday. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Happy Easter to you, Nicola. If you look behind me, yeah. you'll see there's a, a display here of chocolate rabbits. Can you see them? I can see them. I'm jealous. Because my sister works for a supermarket, so she gets discounted chocolate rabbits. Oh, how lovely. That's interesting you say that because <laughs> I am. I tried to go and get my niece's Easter eggs this morning. I'm very disorganised, I'm a bad auntie, mm. and there's a complete shortage, I can't get any, so I've just been fleeced for 20 quid in a card, <laughs> but I feel oh, a really no. bad auntie. <laughs> 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 if I'd known, I would have got you to send a couple of chocolate bunnies up. Very happy still to do that. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be very disciplined having your chocolate there still. Well, but chocolate's one of those things that I'm quite happy not to eat at all. Oh, right. But if I have a little bit of it, I have to have all the chocolate in the world. Uh, all or nothing, so, girl. Um, you'd probably be helping me out if you took some of these rabbits <laughs> off my hands. So we'll have a rabbit-related chat later Afterwards, on. Afterwards, <laughs> I love it. Yes. Um, actually, talking about sweeties, I was thinking back uh, to when we did Dom and Molière at the Lyceum in mm. 2016, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, which was by Liz Lockhead. And I remember uh, thinking you were like the sweetie fairy godmother because during that you would bring in jelly babies and licorice all sorts to rehearsals. But I think you unknowingly became a feeder for me. Um, <laughs> do you do you like a sweetie yourself, Siobhan? Well, I quite like them in the rehearsal room, um, not just in the vain hope that people will like me, but also because... <laughs> Sometimes you just need a a little hit of some sugar, don't you? You do. It just makes the day a bit brighter. I mean, you do have the crash after. Um, This morning, went for a little walk with my sister because it's Easter Sunday and that's all we can really do at the moment. (laughs) And um, we went down to Musselburgh Harbour and there's a bit of a storm going on in Edinburgh and there was a little dinghy that was um, being swept away and I thought, yeah, I really wouldn't like to go on that in the wind. But it reminded Mm. me of a wee story that you told me um, I hope I've not dreamt this. Did you have something happen when you decided to jump over boats? <laughs> yes. Um, refreshment had been taken. Oh, right. Uh, it was in a harbour in uh, Genoa. I don't... Was it Genoa itself? I can't remember. This was a very long time ago. I was doing a television drama. Uh, and one of the things that the character that I was playing does is she runs away and lives in Italy. Right. So we were filming in Genoa and it was the last night of filming. So there was a hoolie. Uh-huh. And then the leading man, Paul Bettany, and I 
We're walking back to the hotel and he has the longest legs in the history of the world. He's really got seven league legs. He said to me, we could cross the harbour going from boat to boat. Now, you know what a kind of holly hobby head girl, don't do anything terrible person I am. It's completely unlike me. Half a glass of baby sham and I think this is a brilliant idea. So we go from boat to boat, like we boat, yeah. across the harbour and I fell in. And I could easily have been killed. I think I remember this. I don't think I've just made it up subsequently. I think I can remember seeing Paul's face and the faces of some other interested bystanders up on the, like, the harbour side. And as I came back up in my uh, cheruti coat with my handbag still over my shoulder, I remember shouting, you bastard, for no reason. He hadn't done anything. But he did get me <laughs> He got me out of the water, walked me back to the hotel, you know, took all the money out of my purse, put it on the radiator, stayed with me, ran a bath, made sure I got in it. Hopeless, ghastly, shocking tale of tragic <laughs> misdemeanour. So what, did the boat just move away? What happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought I could take a step from one boat. It's not the first time I've fallen for this. I thought <laughs> I could take a step from one boat into the next. But no, I went into the drink instead. <laughs> Don't do that at home, boys and girls, or anywhere else. I love it. Health has out of my goodness. <laughs> um, so the last time I saw you in person was when um, you came with our lovely pal Liz Lockhead to see her production of Tartuffe in Edinburgh, which I was doing in the festival. Yeah. And um, my sister was there and she was just so delighted that you remembered who she was. And I remember she said, oh, Siobhan remembered who I am and she's so lovely. <laughs> and you are. And, and quite rightly so, everyone always has something really lovely to say about you. See, the sweeties work. <laughs> <laughs> I think what everyone takes away is you have this really kind of warm and generous presence. Oh, thank but you. You really do. But, you know, I remember you saying to me, you have a bit of a temper and I just can't believe it. Like, what would make Siobhan angry? Um, well, uh, I try very hard not to lose my temper. I don't really know how to do it constructively. I've always been so afraid of losing it that uh, I've never learned how to have actual proper arguments with people. So what tends to happen either is that I just suck it all up mm -hmm. and then years later, of course this is not applicable in all situations, but this has happened, years later I find myself going, right, that's it. And in 1976, do you remember, you did this terrible thing? And of course people have no idea what I'm talking about because I've just been... Thinking that I've dealt with it, actually writing a tally of some kind. Right. So if there's one thing that I would like to learn how to do between now and death, apart from keep a clean house, it's how to do that kind of thing constructively. Because what tends to happen on two occasions now when I've lost my temper, um, and they've both actually been to do with uh, the theatre. Okay. I have registered that something that I think is idiotic or barbaric is happening. <laughs> and I've said to myself, keep the heat. You can't speak now because if you do, you'll say things that you can never unsay. Right. And I felt quite pleased that I've managed to keep it together. And then I hear someone ranting. And I realise by the looks on the faces of the people round about me that the ranter is me. 
And it's sort of cartoon, you know, like stars twinkle, birds tweet. There's a wash of red. It's hopeless. So um, I try very hard not to lose it. But this this situation that we're living in has not done much for my patients. You'd think that the reverse would be true, but no, it hasn't. I think I called somebody in Egypt last week without actually realising that I'd done it. Oh, wow. Well, there's masks, you see? Oh, oh yeah, of Behind course. the mask. There's a constant stream of abuse coming out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so, as mentioned, I had the pleasure of working with you on the Loma Molière. It was is a, good fun, wasn't it? It was a great show. And uh, <laughs> we had the best costumes, right? The oh. most gorgeous costumes. Oh. Yeah. But what I do remember is that you had this very sort of flamboyant pink dress at one point and during tech you realised that you couldn't get through the wings so you had to do like a side shuffle on the stage. <laughs> uh, was it not called the sideboard? It was a sideboard, yeah. <laughs> it was wonderful and so obviously you, you were playing, um, was it Madeleine Bajard? Yeah, Madeleine Bajard it was, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And um, who was Molière's um, real life uh, leading fancy lady woman and I think fancy the term woman is. Yeah. and a uh, business partner, and you played opposite the wonderful Jimmy Chisholm. Jimmy was a machine during that because he was doing two shows. I think was he not doing an old and more at the I same time? I think he was doing at least two. Yeah, crazy. Um, but I just. <laughs> I remember, I remember that last scene, that beautiful big scene where we would walk on, or the rest of us would walk on while yourself and Jimmy were doing these beautiful speeches at the end. We were all dead, right, yeah. at the time. But it's a and, gradual reveal. There's a point, yeah. isn't there, where you realise that actually these are all ghosts that you're seeing. Yeah. And we would all walk on and my character, Therese, was quite vain, so she had a mirror. And I remember I had to freeze and I sort of got this huge fear that I would mess up this scene because I thought if I move out this freeze frame well she's not dead and I've buggered it up for uh, Siobhan and Jimmy <laughs> and, and I got, got this genuine fear and I was thinking you just seem so calm and collected to me all the time do you ever have any fear about going on stage oh absolutely I do oh completely I do and in fact it gets worse because I know more now about what can go wrong <sighs> but I seem to have a kind of um kamikaze desire every so often to throw myself out of a plane in the theatre. Um, it's always in the theatre. It's not really anywhere else, fortunately for me. So at the end of 2019, I answered the phone one afternoon. I was trying to learn lines for one of those infernal self-tapes that we all have to do oh, now. Yeah. And this one was sort of a futuristic thing. So... It's full of terminology that has been made up, so you've got nothing to relate it to, so it was quite hard to learn. I was trying to get this into my head, really just to show my agent that I am willing, not that I think I stand a cat's hell in, a cat's chance in hell of ever getting any of these jobs. But So the phone rings, it's my agent, and she said, um, our client, Samantha Bond, has injured herself and she's having to retire from a production at the Almeida, which is due to open in 10 days' time. <laughs> They've asked if you'd like to stand in for her or take over from her or whatever kind of insanely flattering terminology they use to try and get somebody at that point in the proceedings. And um, because I've done a couple of things at the Royal Court, Vicky Featherstone every so often takes it into her head to do shows with a very short rehearsal period. And because I've done a couple of those, mm -hmm. I thought, well, 
I'm never going to get to work at the Almeida any other way, frankly. It's my local theatre. Don't I'm, be no, it's, silly. No, it's true, Nicola, it's true. Really? I'm never going to get to work there any other way. And it'll get me out of doing this infernal self-tape about the Zaphords taking over from the, you know, whatever it is. So I just thought, well, you know, with 10 days to go, they can't expect anything. Mm -hmm. And if necessary, I'll, ha I'll have to go on with the book. What they need now is someone to stand there and give them the right cues and just let them do the work that they've been rehearsing mm -hmm. for four weeks or whatever. So I get there and I discover that uh, it's not um, it's not going to be that straightforward, but they are going to give me a little bit more time. And in fact, there was another actor who joined the proceedings one day later than I did. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because on the night of the first preview, I really was as calm as a mill pond because I thought, well, if I get any of it right, we're ahead. Uh-huh. Any of it. Yeah. And it is just a play, which is simultaneously the most and least important thing in the world. Um, and anybody who comes to a preview under those circumstances deserves what they get, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you could call those people ambulance chasers, really. <laughs> anybody who goes <laughs> to see a show that's being put on under those circumstances. <laughs> But actually, it was a really, um, it was a really good thing to do. I mean, I, I said to the the director when I got to the theatre on the first day, "This is not going to be a star is born." Do you know what I mean? It's not going to be like that. I'm just going to try and get this learnt as yeah. well as I can. And I, I have learned you can learn a three act play in ten days. What you can't do is turn that into five weeks rehearsal. So things on the stage are constantly taking you by surprise, which is problematic when you're playing a person who's actually a character who's actually um, manipulating everybody else. But I wouldn't have missed it for the world. And I would recommend that, Nicola. I would take away all your safety nets from yourself and just go out and do it and see what happens to you because you won't die. That's, that is really interesting that you just like feel the fear because I do think if you can get to a point where you start overthinking it, don't you? And yeah. you go around the houses and sometimes, um, yeah, maybe maybe that's the trick. We just have to throw ourselves off the diving board and see what happens and hope for the best. Yeah. So the first time I ever saw you perform was as Jean Brodie in The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie yeah. um, by Muriel Spark at the Lyceum Theatre. I think I was about 14 and I just drank in your performance. I can genuinely still vividly remember it. You were pitch perfect. Oh, thank you. But I'm really interested to know, what was your approach to such a famous character? Because everyone will have a preconceived idea of who she yeah. was yeah. and how she speaks. And did you feel pressure to live up to that? Or do you just kind of erase those um, previous performances and public expectations to find your own Jean Brodie? I'll tell you what was really good for me. Years before that, the first show that I ever did at the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, a, a production uh, of Much Ado About Nothing. And mm -hmm. that's a part that I should play well. And I never managed to play it well. And I was put off constantly by the thought of all the people before me and all the people coming after me. You know, sure. you're part of a tradition yeah. when you go and work for a company like that. Well, any theatre, actually, but that one is really well documented. You know, and on the first night, you'll get a programme with pictures of all the incredibly famous people who played that part before you. Oh, and goodness. you think, and tonight, from the east end of Glasgow, ladies and gentlemen, you know, Absurd. And I got really put off. I had a panic attack on stage on the press night, not specifically 
by thinking Judy Dench has played here or Sinead Cusack, but just the, the weight of my own, the pressure that I was putting on myself. I can't do anything about what anybody in the audience thinks about the show. All I can do, well, you know this, you're a really honest actress, all you can do is go out there and um, uh, work to the best of your ability. So yeah. the kicking that I got, and I got it repeatedly for 18 months for the duration of that run, um, actually was very good for me in a way because I'd been quite spoiled up until then. Everyone had always been really lovely, about lovely me and my lovely work. And uh, the spell was broken. But actually, it's been very helpful to me because right. it means that it's not that I'm not aware of Maggie Smith playing Miss Jean Brodie. What she does is is divine. It's absolutely glorious. I can't do that. I just have to do what I can do. I mean, I did get a cab up to the theatre one night and uh, the taxi driver, well, you know, I was chatting away with him and uh, he asked me what I was doing and I told him and he said, um, and are you playing Maggie? And I said, yes. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so when an actress is so identified with a part yeah. as 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 that shows, yeah. all you can do is just the very best you've got that night. But what also made it really helpful was that we weren't working from the script um, as it had always been set down before. Because a few years before that, uh, Fiona Shaw had played Miss Brodie in London and she and her director had gone to talk to Jay Preston Allen, who wrote the stage version, and she had... Um, allowed them some leeway with the script, which meant that subsequent productions could also have a bit of leeway. Okay. So the framing device that's in the play as it is published, mm -hmm. um, which helps to sort of make the play closer to um, an audience which is not a Scottish audience, we could dispense with that. We could put some bits of the novel back into the script. So what I was actually getting was a script that nobody else had done before. It must have been a bit more freeing, yeah. You, you yeah. don't just hear yeah. someone else doing the lines in your head. Yeah. Although ah. sometimes that's quite useful and you think, what is that line? <laughs> and actually, <laughs> I could hear all the lines because you will remember there were umpteen toty wee girls in that show and they all knew all the lines and they all said them from the wings. So oh, I God. knew, you know, <laughs> I knew that at any point I could turn to a teeny tot and say, you girl, what do I always say? And they would tell me. A wee echo for you. Do you know, Siobhan, <laughs> I don't think I've ever told you this. I was in the youth theatre at the time. Yeah. Basically, I was asked if I wanted to be in it, just as one of the wee parts. And mm. um, I, was, I was so serious about my school studies, even though I wanted to be an actress. I was like, oh, no, I better, I better do my prelims. And then I bitterly regretted it oh. for years. I came to see it and I was like, I could have had two lines in that with Siobhan Redman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really glad that we have got to work together on that stage. And you had the best line that anyone's ever had in the play that we did together. <laughs> my favourite is the three-syllable line. That's the one that I will, people are vile. Oh, People are vile. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cracking part. Uh, so I know you actually went to an all-girls school. Is I that, did. That's right, yeah. Was that anything at all like um, the, the school of uh, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie? Yeah, it was quite like it, actually. It was, um, it was a fee-paying day school in Glasgow. It doesn't exist. It's luxury apartments now called the Park School. And that's what my parents spent all their money on. They spent all their money sending my sister and me to this school. And I was a pupil there from, oh, no, did I go to school when I was, no, I'm a July baby. So I was probably just five all the way right through to the end. And when 
uh, I went there. This is uh, how long ago it was. I had a button hook to do up my shoes. You know those little Mary Jane shoes with yes. the metal button? Yeah, that was part of the school kit. And the St Trinian's uh, uniforms with the velvet yoke and the little sash that went round it. So, yes, it was very like it. That's really familiar territory to me. That's very interesting. Mm. And was anybody in your family theatrical or are you the first kind of generation? I'm the only one who uh, has made a living out of it. But... Um, and I'm actually that I'm the boring one. Everybody else in my family is much better at telling stories or um, jokes. All of them were. My dad uh, was a great raconteur. My mum, if there had been any justice in this world, we know there isn't. My mum should have been an actress. She was really, really gifted, oh. and she acted in amateur productions. She directed. My dad. Um, eventually became a lecturer at Strathclyde University and his subject was English and drama. So they took my sister and me to the theatre all the time. And oh. so it didn't seem like an odd thing for me to want to do. Right. They weren't um, particularly wild about the idea. Okay. Uh, probably having spent all their money on my education. But they, um, I think by the time I left school, which was 1977... They knew that I was really serious about it because I knew from when I was about four that that was what I wanted to do. Uh, they, so they knew that I was serious and they knew that I probably had more chance of getting a job in something that I really wanted to do than anything else. I didn't pay attention to anything else, really. I mean, okay. the reason I have ever passed any exams is the thing that enables me to learn lines quickly. I don't actually understand anything that I'm saying in essays. But you can just remember. But I can remember it, yeah. Because you went to um, St Andrew's Uni, I didn't did. you? My dad swung it. See, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to drama school. Okay. And my dad said to me, go to university because you'll have three, four years of being in student plays and you'll get to play the kind of parts that you might not get to play for a long, long time professionally. And uh, I thought that was really good advice and I did it and that's exactly what I did. I mean, I don't think I actually read a book from the minute that I arrived in St Andrews until the minute that I left. Did you have I a good time though? I just was in though? plays, sang in a band. Yes, I had a wonderful time. Yeah. And that is where you met Liz Lockhead, is it not? Did she come and <laughs> yes. see a student production? She did. Her friend, um, Marcella Everisti, was the writer in residence when I was there and um, part of her remit was that she had to write a, a show for students to do and it was directed by her then boyfriend, Michael Boyd, and... Um, who then ran the Tron Theatre in Glasgow and then yep. the Royal Shakespeare Company. And so I worked with Michael for the first time when I was 19 and Liz came to see that show. And then the following summer when she had written her own uh, review that she wanted to do, remembered me and looked through the Redmonds and the phone book until she found the right ones and phoned up. <laughs> and that's, um, that's the first time that I worked with Liz, yeah. The phone book, that is brilliant. It just feels that's really so old kind. school, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't it? I don't even remember. I think I can just about yeah, well, remember my you? old house phone number, but that's about it. It's yes. like the bit in the Hollywood film, you know, where the calendar gets turned over or where the train just keeps going from one coast to the other. That's, yeah, it's like that. So there was the just book. one Redman, was there, in the east of Glasgow, and she tracked <laughs> no, you there down. Were, there were a few, but, um, yeah, she found us quite quickly. Talking about Liz Lockhead, I know that she wrote the part Imperfect Days for you. Yes. You play a hairdresser Barb's in it. 
And um, I mean, there's many reasons uh, that you would play that part, like talent, but you also have incredible hair. What do you use on your hair, Siobhan? Like, help I get all out in lockdown. I am um, not in a position, as you know, because you can see me, not really in a position to give any advice. We're talking 17 different colours in this hair at the moment. Um, I've just always had a lot of hair and I'm completely impossible about it. It's the one thing I feel I've got which can be made to look conventionally attractive. And so that's all I want. I just want conventionally attractive hair and I'm obsessed with having it. At the moment, I'm filming a second series of something. And when we did the first series, I had the red hair that I've had for 30 years of my 61. And it was cut into a bob. And my hair is now... Uh, shoulder length and some of it is grey, some of it is white, some of it is blonde, some of it is faded red on the end. So it's all, it's a kind of a a blonde soup. And I was originally a blonde. (laughs) Um, But I I quite like not having the red bob. And I'm actually, I can't believe that I'm saying this because a, a lot of the work that I've done in the last 30 years has been because of that red hair. I'm actually done with red hair now. Oh, really? Yep. But I think, I mean, I think you really suit the colour you've got just now, but I do also think you equally suit your red. And you oh, always just have great you. volume in your hair. Well, it's just loads of it. All it wants to do is grow over my face, which is probably quite a good idea. I, the, part of the reason I'm obsessed with it is I didn't have it cut until I was about 18. So it was kind of hip length. And I've never really been able to trust hairdressers. I mean, it was remarkable hair, but I looked like cousin it. And I just used to hide inside it. Anyway, so I quite like what's going on at the moment once I can get my hairdresser to kind of, you know, take maybe seven of the shades out of it. Just leave me with a ten, that'll do. Um, So Barb's was written for you. Yeah, she was written for me as a consolation prize because I made an arse of myself in Shakespeare. (laughs) This production of Much Ado About Nothing, which I was so behind the bus in. Um, Liz said to me, I'll write you a play, you know, because I, I, I couldn't do the Shakespeare, but I might be able to do the Lockhead. <laughs> and she gave me this play with my name written on it in gold and a tartan ribbon round it. And it was the best present that anyone's ever given me. It was just oh. the most delightful thing to do. And it was, you know, it was a show for the Traverse at the festival and it snowballed and snowballed because... Uh, the central relationship in the it's about a, a woman who wants to have a baby, but it's also about that same woman and her relationship with her mother. And everybody's had a mother that they either loved or wished they'd loved a bit more or didn't get to know or knew altogether too much about. So everybody could relate to it. And yeah. it was um, and it was a big success and it just kept on going. And we ended up in the West End with it. And it was the most joyful thing to do. I mean, terrifying, because, as you know, she likes a 17 part sentence. She, she does like a long scene. And you can't make it up. I mean, you can't make that stuff. Well, she can, but nobody else can. But it's got rhythm, hasn't it, yeah. Liz's writing? You yeah. have to hit the rhythm yeah. to make yeah. it work. And she's a, she's a good woman, Liz. Yeah, she she's is. a good woman. <laughs> so you're touching about, uh, about mothers uh, there, and I hope you don't mind me asking, but you, like myself, I think you lost your mum relatively young as well. Yes, yeah. Do you feel like losing your mother young changed your path in any way? I think it 
I think quite probably it did. My mother was a very um, influential woman. She was an extraordinary woman and it would be really nice to be able to talk to her now. But I, I, I am a witch. She's been dead in my life for longer than she was alive in it. I mean, I was 23 yeah. when she died. Um, I wonder what she would have made of the way that I've lived. I think, actually, you know, she was very keen that I uh, not be limited Mm -hmm. And I think some of the things I've done are things that she would have liked to have had the opportunity. She wouldn't necessarily have done them the same way, but she would like to have had the opportunity to do them. And really, uh, she should have had that opportunity and didn't. But yes, I think about uh, both her and my dad quite a lot. Um, and I'm aware that sometimes uh, I do things thinking, oh, well, I wonder if my mother would have enjoyed this. Yeah. I think she would have enjoyed it. I don't. Um, I don't know. It's. It's a blessing when I see my friends who are contemporaries of mine, some of them younger, uh, whose mums and dads or dear older family members are suffering the diseases that happen with old age, mm. and and how hard that can be. I'm. I'm very aware that you know I, I've. My sister and I have not had to have that experience with their parents. And actually, by the time both my mum and my dad, by the time each of them died, each of them had had enough of being alive. So I couldn't have wished for her to go on for any longer. No, Or no, indeed no. my dad. But it would be nice to have a laugh with them. Yeah. That would be nice. I mean, that's the times when I think about them most, actually, when I think I'd really like to tell them this. <laughs> Oh, no, and I have um, I have friends who are, are, are a more spiritual bent than I who kind of say, oh, but you'll see them again. And I think, well, I, I don't think I will particularly. But also I'm slightly apprehensive of what my mother would have to say to me. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking slightly about um, uh, people who are spiritual there. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe you played um, twins in Sea of Souls. I did. I think that must have been a wonderful challenge, but did it ever get a wee bit confusing? It did get confusing, but I was entirely reliant on the great goodwill and the skills of Julie Miller, who would stand in for the other twin whenever I right. was playing one of them for me. So I always had her to work with. And um, and she was completely delightful in what must have been an absolutely soul-destroyingly dull gig for her. She was just great. She was wonderful. And I don't really know how you could do it without someone to, you know, be a physical yeah. entity for you to talk to. Um, I found it quite stressful, I have to say, Nicola. I was kind of up to high dough for most of it. Um but again, I was helped enormously by other cast members, Bill Patterson, and in particular, mm -hmm. Peter Capaldi, who was great. We had to do these sex scenes. And, you know, we're saying, oh, who the hell wants to see this? We're old, we're Scottish. We're kind of, we've had enough of this carry on. Um, because Peter is a filmmaker and because he can draw, he can storyboard. So he would say, right, show me the storyboard for these scenes. And he'd say, right, she doesn't have to do that or that or that. You know, you can shoot it that way. And the director, uh -huh. James Hawes, was brilliant. And together we arrived at something that was kind of get-at-able. I mean, I wouldn't recommend necessarily that it be anybody's idea of a good time either to watch or to do. I've not worked with an intimacy coordinator, and I sincerely hope I don't have to at my age. 
<laughs> Thank God, my days for doing that sort of malarkey are, uh, I hope, over. But it, they were definitely pre-intimacy coordinator days. And really, you're reliant on the goodwill of the other person or yeah. persons, depending on what the scene is. You yeah. know, you're going to have to say, could you please, for the love of God, put your hand there and cover that? You know? <laughs> Um, so I'm going to move on to our creative challenge and this week I'm calling it what show was that again you know the way some stuff uh, stays with you after shows and some just doesn't so I'm going to give you a line from something you've appeared in it may not necessarily have been your character's line but I would like to see if you can remember the next couple of lines tell us a bit about the show Hmm. who said it and what the context was right are you ready Siobhan I'm as I'm ever going to be Okay, so the first one is Piff Paff Poff, my heart goes Piff Paff Poff. Piff Paff Poff, I want to have it off. Piff Paff Poff, I want to have it off till I cough. That's the one. And what was that? <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my Never favorite. ages, does it? Um, that's from The High Life, their bid for the Eurovision Song Contest. That's that's correct, bang on. So yes, that was Lyrical Genius by Stephen Sebastian, a.k.a. Alan Cummings and Forbes Masson in High Life, in which you played, was it air stewardess Shona Spirtle? Yes, that's right. Hitler in tights, as she was called. Yep. I loved that programme. The second one is, for those that like that sort of thing... That's the sort of thing they like. Correct. I don't know where that's from. We were talking about it earlier. Is it? Is it Miss Brody? It is. It is. Ah. And I believe it's when she's speaking about the girl guides. So it's oh, a little insight right. into her, her sort of snobbish side. Yes. The third one is, what angel wakes me from my flowery bed? I pray thee, gentle mortal, sing again. Mine ear is much enamoured of thy voice. So is mine eye enthralled to thy shape, and thy fair virtue's force perforce doth move me to say, oh, I've forgotten the middle bit of the line, but it ends. To swear. To swear. To say to swear, I love thee. There's a bit missing. There's a little bit missing. Uh, So on the first view to say to swear, I love thee is what I have to say. Is that it? You're bang on. Virtue's force perforce doth move me. On the first view to say to swear, I love thee. Yes, that's the fairy queen. There we are. Yeah, beautiful. (laughs) And that, of course, yeah, is Titania. Yes. On Midsummer Night's Dream, which you did at the Globe. I did at the Globe and I had played it 18 years before that and thought I was too old for it the first time that I did it. It's very odd that, you know, about those, um, well, about the way that line learning works. The night before doing the play the second time, Mm-hmm. So with an 18 year gap, I thought, being the consummate professional that I am, I suppose I should read it. <laughs> <laughs> Might help, eh? Eh, just before the read through. A wee swatch, it'll be all right. <laughs> so I did, and when I, I got to, the fairy queen has a big speech early on where she's talking to the, the fairy king, her estranged husband, about the consequences um, that their argument has had on the natural world, great big long speech. And the only bit of that I could remember was the first half of the first line and the rest of it was like, I have never seen this before in my life. <laughs> so <laughs> then we had the read through the next day and then I never needed to look at the script again. And it's not because I'm particularly spookily good at learning lines. It's because... 
the information is in there somewhere. Mm. It's just that you can't necessarily access it immediately. Yeah. It's extraordinary. The Cultural Coven is delighted to have musical support from singer-songwriter, musician, member of the Red Hot Chili Pipers, and very importantly, a fifer. Cameron Barnes. This song, Coming Home, and the rest of Cameron's music is available on all the main streaming platforms. So go on, download it and have a wee dance about your kitchen. Thanks Cameron for letting us use this tune. You're very versatile and you've played a huge range of roles. Um, I think um, actors always have a few that stand out in their minds, either because A, they treasure them, or B, they remember them for the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, what are the ones that you remember and treasure, Siobhan? Um, well, Perfect Days, uh, because it was such a special thing, yeah. uh, you know, to have your friend. Because really, I owe her my whole career. I owe Liz my entire so-called sorry-ass career. It's all her fault, and I'll be blaming her if anybody's trying to hold me to account for it. <laughs> and, you know, to have... Because... Uh, it was such a wonderful thing for her to have done. And then the play was such a wonderful thing to do, you know. I, my relationship with my mother was not an easy one. Liz's relationship with her mother, I'm sure you know this perfectly well, was not always easy either. And it it, it was uh, something that spoke to every single person who saw it, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what kind of relationship they'd had with their mother. But it was an important thing in my life, and I think it was quite an important thing in Liz's life to that play. So that... Before that, I did a play with Michael Boyd, which was his adaptation of um, Janice Galloway's novel, The Trick is to Keep Breathing, um, which was an extraordinary thing to do. Again, it's a piece that speaks to people for all sorts of reasons. People would want to talk to those of us who played the central character because there were three of us playing the same character at the same time, different aspects of that character. You won't be surprised to hear that... um, I played the one that never shuts up. You know the voice inside your head going, what did you say that for? Stupid, Uh-oh. stupid bastard, you're always doing that. I played that. Um, Jennifer Black played the real person. And right. then there was a variety of different actresses, Neve McIntosh, uh, Eddie Reader initially, when we did a kind of showcase version of it, try and raise the money for the full-length version. And then Tracy Wiles. Mm-hmm played the subconscious of that character. So that was an extraordinary thing to have three of us playing one person at one time. Yeah. Um, But people would come up to uh, anyone who was in the cast, actually, not just the three of us, after the show and want to talk about uh, the the kind of experiences they'd had, about the whole kind of, am I mad or am I just sad? Uh, Which would be preferable debate. You know, it's an important novel and it was a really important show. And I keep asking Michael Boyd to let it be published and to let other actors have a chance to do it. But uh, that hasn't happened yet. Anyway, so that and um, Dunsinane, David Gregg's play Dunsinane. I was going to mention that actually. Um, it's a different version of Lady Macbeth, right? Is it, it's after the events of the Macbeth yeah. we know. It's a phenomenal play. And I had the great good fortune to do it off and on over five years around the world in various different places. And the more we did it, the more relevant it became. I mean, that tells you something about human nature. You know, it's set in the aftermath of um, a tyrant being deposed um, as a war breaks out. It's really about um, what appalling measures a genuinely good person can be driven to uh, if they feel that that's necessary to bring about a result 
that they believe is the best result for the greatest number of people. Um, it's a beautifully accessible play, but it's in no way simplistic. The ideas are um, quite sophisticated ideas, but they are instantly recognisable. It's I, 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 can't, I could just go on talking about it forever. I'm not going to. I'm a bit in love with that play. So I can't complain, Nicola, you know, and if I don't get another gig between now and death, I really can't complain. I've been extraordinarily fortunate. Obviously, I will complain, <laughs> but I won't be justified. So you can eat, you have your chocolate bunnies. Yeah. They can pass the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're working. You've been really busy during lockdown, haven't you, Phil? I have. I, um, I got to be in... Series 22 of Midsummer Murders, which I actually was in 20 years ago. <laughs> anyway, I'm back. Um, so I got to be in that, which was delightful. You know, it's nice to do a show uh, where they all know exactly how it works and they're all quite comfortable and secure in what they're doing. So most of their energy goes into making the people who are just there for that episode feel kind of welcome and at home and uh, secure enough in what they're doing. And it was joyous to do a show in lockdown. I mean, it was one of the first shows back up in lockdown. And it was also delightful to observe how thrilled we all were to be there. So there was none of the horse shit that you can sometimes get, you know, right. um, with uh, people perhaps having too jealously guarded a sense of their own importance. You know, there was none of that. Everyone was just okay. thrilled to be there. Um and then I got to do a pilot. Well, I'm hoping it's a pilot. I'm hoping it's not the end of the story. Uh, written by a young Scottish writer called Bryce Hart. It's called Beep. You can yes. still see it on iPlayer. And I do wish that people would because its future is going to be determined by that. It, I watched it. It's very good. It was Liz Lockett told me about it. Actually, yeah. very good. Yeah. Very funny. It's always a relief to me when I'm in something that Liz hasn't written but she still likes. Oh, yeah. That doesn't happen that often. <laughs> <laughs> but she really likes Beep, so it's got the Lockhead seal of approval. Yeah. Um, and that was a lovely thing to do. It was completely um, a perfect little pearl of a show to do in a very sad and weary winter. And now here I am on uh, Queens of Mystery, which is this um, slightly hallucinogenic detective series set in... Um, well, most of the locations are in Kent, so it's very beautiful to look at. And I get to work with another couple of actresses who are not quite as old as I am, um, Sarah Woodward and Julie Graham. And we play sisters and have a lovely time doing that. And we have a niece who is the detective and we just get in her way. And you were saying as well that, because um, it, it's quite unusual, isn't it, to have three actresses yeah. of, a, of an age Let's yeah. see. And I mean, that's a nice best No, 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 you're right. <laughs> Normally they allow one of us in and that's it. You know, and we're lucky if we make it through to the end of the episode. Quite often we have to die tragically early on. But no, there are three of us because Acorn, who um, who own the programme, um, they have a subscription audience and they asked their subscription audience what they wanted to see. And they said, we'd like to see some more women in their... 40s, 50s and 60s, please. So the show is absolutely hoaching with us, which is fantastic. It's great. Let's hope that's a sign mm. of things that are changing. Yeah. Um, is there a role that you are still desperate to play? Uh, there isn't a particular role. There are some things I'd like to do. I'd like to do some Irish drama. I've never 
done any Irish plays. I'd like to do some Greek. I've never done mm. any Greek. I would love to do some restoration. I can't understand why someone as camp as I am has not already been in a restoration play. But That's um, a fair point. Yeah, it's a really good <laughs> point, isn't it? Um, I would really like to do that. But basically... When I started working, I just hoped that I would be able somehow to put a roof over my head and that I would go on learning and that I'd go on loving it. And um, and so far I have, and I would be extraordinarily fortunate if I was able just to carry on doing that. Because there comes a point where... I can be drawn to a project, not that I want you to think that I'm sitting here leafing through scripts and going, oh, which of these shall I do next? That's absolutely not the case. But sometimes I'm drawn to a project, not because of what I'm going to be asked to do in it, but because of what somebody else is doing in it. Often it's the writing. Sometimes it's just that you think, well, this would be an adventure. And I'm not dead yet, so I might as well do it. There's still a lot of life in Siobhan <laughs> Redman. A lot of life. Yeah. And actually, I was thinking about this. You've played quite a lot of sort of vixen-type roles in your career. I know, it's absurd. Did, it's not absurd. But did you imagine that no. when you first went into the industry? No, absolutely not. And I never really played those kind of parts until I was in my late 30s, at which point I thought, well, what? You know, I, I suddenly became um, everyone's older woman. Absolutely everybody's older woman, uh, which was a, a very weird, but, you know, enjoyable. Um, I'm playing now a person who is um, not remotely tactile and who, as I do for most of the time when I'm in my own skin, um, lives in her head. You know, she's not really, her body is just used to carry her head about. And that's actually quite relaxing. You know, I quite enjoy that. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, do you have any advice um, for any actors coming into the business apart from don't do it? What would mm. your advice be? Well, I, I I feel terribly sorry for actors who just were just on the point of entering the business when lockdown happened because yeah. they have nowhere to get a toehold. I think you just have to... Um, You have to accept that if there's something else that you can do, which also gives you pleasure, then you should probably do that. If there isn't, just keep going. Mm. I have always had the greatest respect for people who, and there are quite a lot of them, they're actors who genuinely, they're not, um, generally they're not baby actors, they're actors who've been in the business for a while. And they think, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm tired of living like a child. I'm tired of waiting for somebody to give me permission to go and to do the thing that I can do. And they go away and they do something else. And I've, I think that's a very kind of grown-up decision, but I've never been at that point. And um, I think if, if you are filled with a burning desire to be an actor, nothing's going to take that away from you. So give it a go. Maybe give yourself some time. Um, you know, make a rendezvous with your future self turn up to that meeting <laughs> and if nothing is happening then it might be time to see what else you could do but otherwise just go for it you have to don't you yeah. I think you would always be wondering and but actually I wonder if lockdown unfortunately might mean that some people will drop out the business because I think yeah there's questions over how long can people sit this out yeah absolutely um, and there's also a lot of um conjecture 
about how things are going to be cast mm -hmm. in theatre when they open up again. I have a friend who had um, got a job in The Mousetrap, a play which does not depend upon its cast in terms of their star wattage at yes. all, because the star name is Agatha Christie. He'd got a job in that production um, just before whichever, I think it was the second lockdown. Can't, we've had three now, I think, in London. Um, and as you'll know, our union uh, agreed special conditions with the West End in London, which is that we would work for much less than we normally would, just because we all want the business to continue. Mm -hmm. And because people want to work, you know, it's very hard to go on feeling that you are an actor if you're not working. And it's certainly very hard to feel that you're learning anything if you're not working. And if you're a painter or a musician, you can work at home. But if I stay in here talking to myself all day, all that will happen is somebody will take me to hospital in the end. You know, they're not going to take me to a theatre and put me on a stage and shine a bright light on me. <laughs> um, I know that... When the mousetrap reopens, it will be opening with an all-star cast because the theatre management are aware they're not going to have a tourist audience. They're going to need to do something which they are anticipating will appeal to a homegrown audience. Who knows what's going to happen, Nicola? All bets are off. I'm aware this might be clutching at straws, but it's nevertheless true. During lockdown, I really enjoyed that first bit when nobody was working. I really enjoyed having the same career as Helen Mirren. Very good point. I never thought I was on a level with <laughs> Helen Mirren. Yep. You, me, Helen, we were all out of work. That's, that's a brilliant way of looking at it. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Siobhan. I'm going to be telling you. Well, I hope you that. won't need it, Nicola. I hope there'll be something glorious for you as soon as the doors reopen. Well, thank you. Um, so you've worked a lot with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. Is it as grand and as amazing as I imagine it to be? Is there anything different about how you would do a Shakespeare there as opposed to any other theatre? Um, I think the Royal Shakespeare Company, and of course we don't know how this is going to pan out, um, <clears throat> because I should say at this point, I mean, I know you know this, but some of the people listening might not know this, that the money that's been given to the arts sector falls into two categories. There are some gifts which reach a certain amount and will not be made to an amount higher than that. And the other money that is given is uh, a loan. All the money that's given to the arts sector will have to be repaid. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it is a fact and it will colour how productions are put on, who's in them, what kind of staging you get, that sort of thing. But under normal circumstances... I think the Royal Shakespeare Company has a responsibility to give you a production of a Shakespeare play, firstly, which is uh, well and clearly spoken, but also which might not be the production that a theatre outside London, a smaller theatre, uh, <clears throat> they might feel that they have to give you a slightly more conventional take on things. I'm not saying that we should all do, as I have done, an 80s-tastic production of King John, but I think that they can take more of a chance with Shakespeare, and so they should, really. I found myself very overwhelmed by its grandeur when I first went there, as we talked about earlier, but that was to do with me, really, and not to do with them. And it, yes, it is disconcerting when you have someone from the voice department creep into a rehearsal room, make some notes and creep out again. But the fact is they're on your side. Everybody wants you to be the best you can be. Um... And 
I, f- I feel very lucky, possibly because of the home environment that I grew up in, where plays and um, scripts and books in general were things that delighted everybody. They weren't um, scary. Um, partly because of the money that my parents spent on my education, partly because of my dad actually saying, and this is a direct quote, go to university, you can be in those student plays that you might not get to be in professionally for a long time, but also no wean yaff in a leather jacket is going to persuade you that he knows more about Shakespeare than you or that he's more entitled to it than you are. So I've never been afraid of it. And I've also, I mean, it's just luck, this. I've never been afraid to say that I don't know what something means. Right. And I've never been afraid to say that I'm not moving forward until I've got some idea of what it means. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of people, um, and it's perfectly understandable, feel that somehow, because Shakespeare is, uh, you know, the greatest English playwright, they ought to know what every single word means, and there's no reason why they should. And so people get... Um, they get hung up about the idea of Shakespeare. And I, I, I've been fortunate in that I've never been, I've never suffered from that, but I did suffer from worrying about the glorious lineage of actors who'd been before me. And that's completely pointless as well. So basically just get on there and say it as if you mean it. And even I, who have spent a lot of years going to the theatre and uh, being in, but, you know, being an audience member at Plays by Shakespeare, it takes me 10, 15 minutes to get my ear in at the beginning of every single play because it's not a way that people speak. Um, it contains all the elements that make human speech interesting, but it's a, mm-hmm. a brighter, bigger version of that, and it contains unfamiliar terminology, and you need to just attune your ear to it as you would... Anything else, it isn't how you speak. Um, you were in Doctor Who, weren't you? I've been in, I've never been in a Doctor Who that anyone could see. I've been in an audiobook version of Doctor Who. And you took over a role? I did take right? over a role. I took, so I grew up in a house that had no television in it, oh. which means that I didn't see Doctor Who when I was a kid. I did see television because my Auntie Mary lived four doors along the road and she had a television and she would put on things that we wanted to see sometimes. But basically what I saw tended to be what the adults wanted to see. So um, I have never seen Doctor Who and I didn't really know what a big deal it was, except that um, when Big Finish Productions got in touch with me and said, uh, would you like to take over this role from uh, the late and very great Kate O'Mara? I knew that those sparkly slingbacks were going to be big shoes to fill. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I haven't done it for a couple of years because there's a bit of debate. The lady who owned the rights to that character um, is now deceased and there's a bit of debate about who owns what bit. So I haven't done it um, for a little while, but I really enjoyed doing it. And of course, there are all sorts of mini conventions. I mean, I'm not talking the Hollywood Bowl. I'm talking, you know a library in Epping, but nonetheless, it's the same kind of thing, where people who live and breathe the Doctor Who universe turn Mm -hmm. up and ask you questions, and I can't answer any of it, because I haven't seen any of Doctor Who, but I decided quite early on that was the best plan, really, because then I could just approach the whole thing. Yeah, from a blank page. And and not not get up anybody's nose by claiming that this or that character was my favourite, because I genuinely don't know what I'm talking about. Were the fans quite accepting of you coming in when you're taking over a role? Yes, they were. They were very generous and very kind. And some of them, you know, 
<clears throat> these little conventions would sort of arrive, um, presumably in character, but certainly in costume. I mean, you, you have to respect something that people are so committed to. And they were very sweet about the fact that I'd never actually seen the thing that they're so enamoured by and uh, and very keen to help me out with, uh, you know, things I might not know that might be useful for me. So I found it quite a joyful experience and I would love to do some more. Why can we not be in Doctor Who? Because we could have nice blue heads and some extra arms and things. We could do that, Nicola. We could definitely do that. <laughs> yeah. So I am going to move on to our last little bit, yeah. which is our quick fire questions. Oh. So I always say these are the fundamentals on which I judge a person. So feel judged, <laughs> right. Miss Redmond. Okay, I do, I do. So I will give you two options. Mm -hmm. And if you can just fire back with your instinctive answer. Okay, here goes. TV or theatre? Theatre. The Bard or Burns? The Bard. Chippy sauce or no chippy sauce? No chippy sauce. <gasps> Sin or virtue? Virtue. Jelly babies or licorice all sorts? Licorice all sorts. Arthur Miller or Noel Coward? Um, Noel Coward. City or countryside? City. The slosh or the macarena? The slosh. A buffy or a la carte? A buffet. Heels or flats? Can we say kitten heel? Or can we say a lug sole? We could say a lug sole. I'll, I'll accept yeah. that. Since it's you, I'll take it. <laughs> right. Independence or no independence? Independence. Yes. Fancy Nancy or dress down? Fancy Nancy. A night in or a night away? A night in. And that concludes the quickfire questions. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving up your Easter Sunday. But also, I am never going to believe another thing you say because last night you sent me a message saying don't expect any sort of sparkling chat. And that was some sparkling chat. So I beg to, to differ with you. Oh, thank you. That's um, unnecessarily kind. No, I don't actually um, have anything to say. I've just got quite a big vocabulary. So I can say nothing <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> Stop it. You're wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh -huh. And I really, really do hope that I get to see you in person soon. Oh, Yvonne. yes, please. And maybe we can be in a play, Liz Lockhead. Could you just write us another play? Yes, I'll just send her this podcast yes, once it's do. out there and she can listen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's Thank really lovely you. to talk to you, Nicola. You know, I can listen to Siobhan all day. That was just lovely. Thank you for tuning in and why not join me next week when I'll be talking to poet, artist, playwright, former Maka of Scotland, the glorious Liz Lockhead. Well, I suppose we've talked about her enough now, so it's only right we let her on. Joking, you are going to love her episode. Until then. Until then.